The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witts University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on China-Africa relations through training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, we're joined by our own managing editor, Kobus van Staden from Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, it has been a very busy week out here in Asia. U.S. President Joe Biden has been in town. And even before he arrived last week, if you recall, it was busy when he was hosting leaders from the Association of Southeast Asian Nations in uh, Washington for the U.S. ASEAN Special Summit. So Asia has been the focus of attention. This week, though, we have seen the unveiling of the new Indo-Pacific Economic Framework Program. This was meant to be the big challenge to China. In fact, let me just read you some of the headlines that we've been seeing out here. Reuters said, Biden in Japan to launch regional economic plan to counter Beijing. CNN said, Biden unveils his economic plan for countering China in Asia. So you can see that the framing of this new IPEF plan is all about China. Let's take a listen to what Biden said in Tokyo when he took the veil off IPEF. We're here today for one simple purpose. The future of the 21st century economy is going to be largely written in Indo-Pacific, in our region. The Indo-Pacific covers half the population of the world and more than 60 percent of the global GDP. And the, uh, the nations represented here today and those who will join this framework in the future are signing up to work toward an economic vision that will deliver for all peoples, all our peoples. The vision for an Indo-Pacific that is free and open. Let's start with new rules governing trade and digital goods and services. So companies don't have to hand over the uh, proprietary technology to do business in a country. Let's create a first-of-its-kind supply chain commitments to eliminate bottlenecks in critical supply chains and develop early warning systems so we can identify problems before they occur. And let's, let's pursue other first-of-its-kind commitments to clean energy and decarbonization. The climate crisis is an existential threat that is costing us trillions in economic damage, but there's also incredible potential and opportunity to solve problems and create good jobs by transitioning to a clean energy economy. So, Kobus, he made the case that the stakes are incredibly high for the Indo-Pacific. And for those of you who are not from the hinterlands of the Washington, D.C. Beltway, Indo-Pacific is what we out here in this part of the world called Asia or Asia-Pacific. That's a U.S. thing. Nobody out here, by the way, calls it Indo-Pacific except uh, the, the Americans. So just want to, that's a weird Americanism that they've done because they, they wanted to pivot away from Asia because I think there was two Chinese, I don't know what it was. But anyway, so you and I have been writing all week about how this IPEF thing is more or less, in our view, dead on arrival. And for a number of different reasons. First of all, out here in Vietnam, not a lot of enthusiasm. The state-controlled media out here, they were doing the perfunctory coverage, but you could tell just in the coverage, not a lot of enthusiasm for it. 
I wrote today to our subscribers three reasons why I think this is dead and not going to go anywhere. And Kobus, I'd like to get your take because I know you've been writing about this. Number one, it does not provide any market access to the U.S. That's the thing that people are most interested in. It's not really fundamentally a trade deal because it doesn't provide any preferential access into the U.S. market. So one has to wonder, what's the point? Because that's what this country here in Vietnam and many of the Asian countries are trading countries. They want access. Vietnam now has 15 free trade agreements in place. So no market access is really not that appealing to most Asian countries. Also, let's take into account U.S. politics. It's going to take at least 18 months for the 13 countries that are participating in IPEF to negotiate a final deal. 18 months, by the way, is a very aggressive time frame. So let's say it takes 18 months to two years. That's going to put you right into the run-up of the U.S. presidential election and less than a year before a new American president sits in the Oval Office, assuming, of course, that Joe Biden is not going to run again, given his age. So the question is then, you know, the memories are very fresh out here of what happened the last time that Asian countries bent over backwards to accommodate U.S. demands on labor, on environment, on technology, on intellectual property rights, all of that that went into what's now known as CPTPP or the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Those memories are fresh when Donald Trump came into office, and I think within the third or fourth day, he ripped up the agreement and withdrew the United States. TPP, by the way, moved on without the U.S., but they remember what happened. So I think people are very, very skeptical. Also bear in mind, Cobus, that this is probably not going to be congressionally ratified. It will be in an executive order. And that means the new president, whoever that may be, can simply come in and at the swipe of a pen, empty it out and say, we're not going to do it anymore. So again, another reason why countries may be more ambivalent. And then, of course, there is what I called the China thing. The U.S. is framing this as a confrontation to China, as we heard in those headlines. Countries like Vietnam, Southeast Asian countries, all but the big Northeast Asian countries in Korea and Japan are very ambivalent, like most African countries, of getting stuck in the middle of a conflict between the United States and China. And bear in mind, China's economic influence here in Southeast Asia and throughout much of Asia Pacific is far bigger than the United States. So one has to wonder, why would you throw your chips down on to make a gamble or a bet on the IPEF when, in fact, the Chinese have something called RCEP, which is RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. That is their free trade agreement. They're trading much more with the Chinese than they are with the Americans. So again, all of these factors together, Cobus, make this just a very, I think, just a non-starter. Yeah, there's also the additional, you know, irony that now China, as you said, China's leading RCEP, you know, and and it, it's facilitating China's already enormous trade relationship with these countries. But China's also applied to join CPTPP, um, you know, so it's <laughs> we, we're facing the possibility that, you know, that this kind of block designed by the US to exclude China will be led by China soon, you know. Um, so so it's, it's, it's very interesting. Um, I agree with you that that the fact that it doesn't include market access, I think, makes it something that that a lot of these um, countries may not be that interested in, or not not primarily interested in. Um, I think the the. The, the soundbite we featured from from uh, President Biden himself also made, you know, kind of made a secondary point there that obviously a lot of this has been shaped by the experience of American companies in expanding to China where they were forced by by the Chinese government to turn over some some intellectual property. And this is clearly designed to to, you know, allow that to not happen again. 
But the problem is, is that I think developing countries, you know, can, is, you know, I think that they take a lot of inspiration from the fact that China managed to leverage that much, I like, you know, intellectual property from Western companies, um, and you know, I think both both ASEAN and African countries um, would be <laughs> would love to have the, the 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 ability to kind of to get you know intellectual property transfer from these companies um, because so much of China, China's explosive development was based on that, um, or not only on that intellectual property itself, but the way that it then sparked additional innovation within China. Um, you know, so, so that, I would imagine, is another reason why they're not super, or they don't seem super enthusiastic about it. Um, you know, the, the, the other issue then is, is also is, is, is where the weight of all of the standard setting is going to land. Um, you know, kind of whether, it's, whether it will only land on, which as a lot of people have said, that it will mostly land on the Southeast Asians rather than on, on the Americans, you know, kind of, and, um, and you know, so, so again, there's a, there's a lot being asked of these countries within, with, with not that much sweetening the deal. So the IPEF is just the latest in a long string of initiatives that are either directly explicitly targeted at confronting China or indirectly targeted. Let me just refresh you on some of the past ones that we've had. Remember, there was the Clean Network, which was targeted at providing an alternative to Huawei and Chinese technology. Then there was the B3W, Build Back Better World. Again, I've mentioned this number of times on the show that we are fast approaching the one year anniversary to the announcement of B3W and there's nothing to show for it. B3W was ostensibly intended to confront or to provide an alternative to the Belt and Road Initiative. There are any number of these different initiatives that are playing out and time and time again one of the consistent themes that we're seeing in this, and again, we're not trying to harp and be negative on the U.S., we just don't feel necessarily that they're rising to the challenge. But it's happening in many different parts of the world. Obviously, this week it's in Southeast Asia and Asia. We've seen this previously in Africa. That's where B3W aims to play out. And Huawei is another area where it's playing out worldwide, especially in regions like the Middle East. And that's why when we saw a, an article pass through the national interest, uh, China is winning the Middle East data, cyber, and technology race by Mohamed Soleiman, who is a non-resident scholar with the Middle East Institute's Emerging Tech Program and Egypt Program, and also a senior associate at the consulting firm McClarty Associates Middle East and North Africa Practice. We took a lot of interest and rushed out to invite Mohammed on the show, and he joins us this morning from Washington, D.C. A very good morning to you. Good morning. I mean, good afternoon, I assume. Yes, uh, so it's good afternoon and good evening. We're coming from all over the world today, but we're so excited to have you on the program. This is something that I've been eager to do for a very, very long time. We're a big fan of yours and the work that you do. You heard the setup there about how the United States has been determined for a number of years to confront China's growing influence in the global south. It's done so with, I think, to be fair, mixed results at best. My assessment's probably far more skeptical about the, the U.S. performance overall. Your article seemed to be something of a warning to official Washington. And let me just quote here, okay? You said, quote, without fully integrating data, cyber, and technology into Middle East relations, the U.S. risks handing regional dominance to its greatest geopolitical foe. Let's start our conversation with that stark warning. 
First of all, thanks so much for inviting me to your show. I really enjoy the work you do. It's fascinating. And I believe that you are one of the most influential podcasts in the space. So I really applaud you for the work you're doing. Uh, let me start by your question, which is, uh, I would say, a very, very important question. What I mean by integrating data, cyber, uh, and tech into U.S. foreign policy broadly and Middle East in general. Um, in the recent years, foreign policy has changed. It's not really centered around uh, the usual bilateral relations around security, trade. Now it's more about 5G data transfer. Uh, it's about tech capabilities. And the United States did not really do its own homework for the last five, six, seven years. And this is why we ended up with the, the, the 5G situation. The United States alliance and partners have been partnering with ZTE and Huawei to build their own 5G capabilities. And folks in Washington didn't really understand why, how, uh, uh, when did this happen? And there's a recognition that we're lagging behind. Um, um, and when we start reacting to this, uh, that was under the Trump administration with the Open, Open Network Initiative, it was almost like a crackdown that also made our own partners and allies uncomfortable. Um, um, right now, we don't really have the luxury of just understanding our own relations with Middle Eastern countries from uh, the normal traditional security lens. Uh, tech is cornerstone. Uh, tech is, uh, 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 is very fundamental to uh, many of our own partners and allies' uh, uh, aspirations to be self-resilient, to be rising powers, to be economically independent. Uh, this is the new norm, and we need to acknowledge that. And we cannot really send diplomats to capitals around the world who do not really understand 5G, data transfer, uh, autonomous vehicles, uh, AI, uh, uh, the old normal Kissingerian model of a diplomat that speaks just a foreign language um, um, and he's there to or she's there to have a, a cocktail with an ex-ambassador or an ex-official, that model is is already dead. We need people who understand the tech landscape, the geotech landscape, understand what, what what's a whole semiconductor uh, uh, situation means for the United States and its own footing globally. So I know it's a long story. I know I have been talking about many subjects, but this is the framework. Tech is fundamental to US foreign policy. Tech is fundamental to geopolitics. Therefore, we need to uh, center tech to our own foreign policy uh, uh, preferences and our own strategic doctrine. If we start with with internet provision, you know there was this this really kind of eye popping moment a few years ago where, um, you know, during the the height of the 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 Trump era, kind of crackdown on Huawei and a lot of pressure being put on on global South governments, you know, to to choose sides. Where the South African president Cyril Ramaphosa had this moment where where he said um, in an interview, like, well, the U United States is just jealous of 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 Huawei's um, achievements in five G. And that they can't match it, um, and you know, kind of, it, it, it got it, it, it elicited an angry response from Washington. Um, but I was wondering where we're standing in the five G, six G, seven G race now between between the United States or and and Western allies and China. Like, who, you know, what is what is the kind of like where are we in the moment of technological development in 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 that in that field? One of the problems that the United States has in general is there's nothing called USA Inc. There's a China Inc. You can basically bring Huawei, ZTE, 
and they come with their own financing, they come with their own technical background and the diplomatic might of China. But in the United States, you don't really have that. You don't really have a China, I mean, you don't have a United States Inc., um, a, a national champion uh, that you can uh, 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 point to and say, okay, this is an American national champion that's going to bring Washington, that's going to bring all the American power, American geoeconomic muscle behind X project. America doesn't really have that. That's not really how the American model works. In terms of, of the 5G race, I mean, we don't really have the equivalent of Huawei, and that was one of the problems, right? One of the problems that the United States has in the Huawei, in the, in the 5G race, you don't really have a U.S. company that compete uh, uh, in general. And then you ended up with some, uh, I mean, some laughable or some, um, um, uh, some policy recommendations uh, for instance, during the Trump administration about United States buying either Nokia or, uh, or Ericsson uh, and transform them into American, um, uh, American champions who can compete in the space. Of course, that, that proposal did not really fly. And then we ended up with, uh, with the uh, Open Network Initiative, which was a State Department initiative that's telling allies and partners, you need to exclude Huawei from your own network. Um, um, and I think the strategy at that time was to prevent uh, uh, the main partners, the main alliance to the United States from having um, um, uh, having Huawei in their own 5G because that might have an impact on national security impact on intelligence sharing about uh, military installations. I mean, in the case of Israel, in the case of UK, in the case of France. Um, uh, on, an, on the long term, there was another emphasis coming from Washington on investing in R&D with Quad, with Japan, with India, trying to develop uh, uh, some uh, more indigenous uh, uh, 6G capabilities on the long term. But that's it. I don't really see uh, more movement into um, um, uh, that track uh, right now. We know that Huawei uh, got hammered. We know that Huawei lost a lot of its own cloud because of the U.S. sanctions. Uh, But that doesn't mean the United States filled the gap that really exists that allowed Huawei to be where it is right now. Just to clarify, do you mean that in terms of only in terms of the expansion into the world and the kind of network building that Huawei was doing, or also in terms of the actual the actual race for to improve the technology itself? So, so is there also not an, a, a U.S. kind of actor like a Google or someone who's who's like kind of you know racing ahead in the the six G and seven G direction? Yes, that's correct. Would you mind kind of explaining that to me, like how that works commercially? Like, it, you know, is answer the kind of Google's, Apple's, and so on of, of of Silicon Valley, also in competition with each other to try and kind of to try and just be the the kind of market innovator on you know just for their own sake in in the U.S. market. So is is it not that those kind of have those market forces not managed to kind of push the that level of of innovation um, on the U.S. side as as people would have expected it would. Part of what you're talking about is a reflection of a broader situation in the United States. Tech is perceived as bad for political reasons. And right now, there is a tendency to fight big tech. Like big tech right now is is not perceived as really American companies. They're perceived as global companies. Therefore, there are some voices on the left and on the right that want to punish big tech. So we are seeing a lot of regulations um, uh, from data transfer, which is very essential to AI and development of, of these companies' models, to taxation, to even not helping with the whole H-1B immigration uh, uh, situation. Uh, 
tech really is under a lot of scrutiny in the United States. And that started to impact the United States uh, positioning uh, when it comes to geotechnology around the globe. Um, and people here have been talking about the fact that in great power competition, you cannot really afford to alienate uh, your tech companies. Uh, and there's no strategic. But, you know, American American political discourse right now is going through a very difficult time, to say the least. That is uh, definitely an understatement, no doubt. Let's go back to the Middle East. Help us contextualize how tech factors into the broader power shift that appears to be underway in the Middle East, whereby there is a perception, and again, U.S. officials do counter this perception. They disagree with it vehemently, that the United States is losing interest in the Middle East, particularly the Persian Gulf. It's intending to pull back a little bit. The Chinese are moving in. We do know that Chinese economic engagement in the Persian Gulf in particular has gone up considerably. Chinese diplomatic engagement, the Chinese have even offered to uh, mediate parts of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Uh, There's a lot more presence of the Chinese in the Middle East. There's a special envoy that's been making the rounds. Help us put tech in the broader context between the United States and China in the Middle East and Persian Gulf. No, this is a very excellent question. So uh, there are two parts to your question. The first part is the one about U.S. military footprint engagement with the region broadly, and the second one is more about tech. For the first part, here in Washington, everyone say, do not believe uh, the perceptions, do not really believe the headlines. America is in the Middle East. We are not going anywhere. We have and we maintain the same military footprint. That's easier said than done. What I mean by that, the Carter Doctrine um, that dominated the U.S. engagement in the Gulf, for example, is dead, right? Uh, when uh, uh, Iranian missiles or Iranian attack on Aramco, on, on the oil facilities in Saudi Arabia in 2019, and the United States did not respond, that was perceived as death to the Carter Doctrine. Sorry to interrupt you. Can I ask you just to briefly explain what is the Carter Doctrine? And Carter Doctrine was mainly the United States is committed to the defense of the Gulf uh, countries and making sure there's no other great power that dominate the energy sources of the Gulf. And that definitely started in 1980s, uh, uh, height of the Cold War. And after that, that was the Kuwait, uh, the, the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait and the United States uh, uh, gathered a coalition to expel the Iraqi forces and uh, Desert Storm and the rest of the story. Um, uh, and that that doctrine dominated or basically uh, framed the U.S. engagement with the Gulf for the last, arguably, last 40 years. And in 2019, when, when the RJC, when the Iranian, when Iran attacked Saudi oil facilities in Al-Qaeda and the United States did not respond, that was perceived as there's no Carter Doctrine anymore. There is no there is no U.S. security commitment to the defense of the Gulf in 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 times of attack, and that also means that these uh, oil producing nations are vulnerable because their own uh, security guarantor is actually not reacting really as a guarantor anymore. They maintain the same military footprint, but the, but these U.S. forces are not really being in use, and that created I would say shockwaves, meaning Abu Dhabi, uh, Riyadh uh, started to look for no alternatives to the United States, but they're looking for them to be self-reliant. Uh, it's not a binary question between China and the United States. I, I somehow disagree with that connotation. In the Middle East, and I would say around the world, countries want to be resilient. And that's a reflection of many factors. Number one, no one wants to be a pawn in another Cold War. Number two, no one um, 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 
no one uh, after after seeing what happened COVID nineteen and the, the vulnerability of supply chain, no one wants to be reliant on uh, foreign uh, suppliers, uh, even if they are great powers. And number three, nations, I mean populations, want to be in uh, uh, in resilient countries, resilient states that are immune to shocks of the global geopolitical uh, landscape. So. Uh, what does it mean in the Gulf? It means if we have the finances, if we have the financial capabilities, why wouldn't we start building our own domestic slash indigenous capabilities that will allow us to be independent and resilient and able to confront um, uh, uh, threats that uh, uh, that basically uh, threaten our own safety and security? And this is what the uh, the Saudis and the Emirates have been doing. They have been investing heavily in their own tech capabilities. I mean, the Emirates uh, already are um, uh, developing their own drones, have been working extensively on building their own indigenous industry. Uh, they're pioneer in uh, using AI on commercial scale, uh, deploying. Uh, uh, they're also trying to invest in open RAND 5G, basically trying to diversify their 5G ecosystem. So they also try to avoid any potential US sanctions or any sort of cr- another crackdown Chinese equipment. Uh, uh, they are trying to have tech partnerships with countries like India and Israel. So they're investing heavily. Same thing in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is going through one of the most fascinating digital transformation I have seen. When I go to Saudi Arabia uh, almost every two months, um, uh, uh, the country has uh, an fascinating digital slash data ecosystem. Uh, they're deploying 5G uh, 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 in a faster scale. They're trying to invest in smart cities. Uh, 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 they're also building their own drone capabilities. They're trying to build anti-drone capabilities to counter the healthy attacks coming from Yemen. So you are seeing a lot of different trends in the Gulf. And these trends are not really per se choosing China over the United States. It's more of choosing themselves. They're trying to build their own capabilities. And that's the message uh, that I believe they're trying to give to Washington. Not think about what we're doing as a choice it's more of us trying to be resilient. But that's a very difficult choice for many people in Washington to accept simply because there is an us versus them mentality that if you're working with the Chinese, then you're not working with us. And you talked about all the different things that the Saudis are doing in terms of building their own weapons, their own drones. A lot of that is being done with Chinese technology, Chinese support and Chinese advice. So I think the Americans may interpret that as a pivot away from the traditional partnership with the United States towards more close alignment with the Chinese. Let me add a tweak here. I would say Saudi Arabia is working with a lot of, a lot of international partners. I mean, Saudi Arabia, France is a very, very major player in, uh, uh, in the military equipment space in the Gulf. And this is a U.S. ally. This is a fundamental NATO member. Uh, same thing uh, applies to U.K., applies to Italy. I would even say that Korea, Japan, and India are rising players um, in the Gulf as as partners, as alliances, as countries that are willing to have co-production, exchange tech, exchange capabilities. Same thing also applies to China and Russia. Uh, so it's not really just China. It is multiple countries, multiple partners that the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Egyptians and the Algerians and many countries are engaging with them. And this is basically, this is a new norm. They believe that not everything has to go through the binary length of Washington 
which is basically either us or them. Because again, we are not in 1990s anymore. This is not end of history. This is not Fukuyama end of history. Liberal democracy has prevailed and Washington is the most dominant force on that earth. That's not true. That's not actually not true. America doesn't have a dominant, the, the same dominant position that it maintained uh, uh, after, the, uh, uh, after the end of the Second World War and in the 10 years or 15 years after the end of the Cold War. That's not the case. And, and alliance and partners understand that and they're trying to hedge and hedge by building their own resiliency and having bilateral relations with many of the rising middle powers on the global level. And this is what we're seeing. This is why you see Turkey as an active player, Korea, Japan, India, uh, France, UK, Germany, uh, of course, Russia and China. Every one of these countries, they are trying to uh, build bilateral relations, trilateral relations and understandings. So they prepare themselves for uh, a reality where Washington cannot come to the rescue because Washington is either very uh, uh, constrained because of political situation inside the country or because, honestly, America uh, is already overstretched. And uh, even when America makes some commitments, it doesn't really mean that America has the capabilities to fulfill these commitments. So in the paper, you make the point that that on, on some issues, these rising kind of tech powers in the Middle East are actually quite well aligned with, with, with China um, or wider Chinese tech thinking. And, and one example is, um, is data sovereignty. Um, you know, so, so for, for, you know, for people who haven't been following this, this debate, data sovereignty is kind of shorthand for, for China's idea that, that the internet should be run, to, like, that, that national governments should have a say about, about the internet, um, and that data should be stored locally. Um, so it's a, it's a move towards a, a kind of a national internet rather than the American model of a, of a global kind of like free and open internet. Um, so I was wondering if you could kind of talk a little bit about that, about that trend and, um, and, you know, kind of what the thinking is in, um, among these governments about, about these kind of, uh, the kind of counter ideas that are coming from China. This is a very excellent question. Data sovereignty slash data nationalism is a reflection of what happened in 2016 in the, in the Russian intervention in the U.S. election through data manipulation. And the first iteration of, of a global reaction to this, the Cambridge Analytica uh, scandal and the, Russian inter- and the Russian interference in the election was the EU launching GDPR. Forgive me that I do not remember what stands for, but it's a, a, an EU framework on regulating data that safeguards EU nationals' data and trying to make sure that uh, the citizens of Europe have access and control over their own data and it's not really being transferred and processed overseas in a way that would threaten or jeopardize their own data security. And what happened is the EU, as a regulatory superpower, impacted the global perception of data. So the story, in my opinion, is somehow different. People started replicating or taking the EU GDPR as a model for the data framework. And this is the Indian model right now. This is Turkey. This is Egypt, Saudi. Countries have uh, their own uh, concerns about uh, some use of data, uh, the use of their own national citizens' data, and how it's being processed overseas. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't really just put it in the bucket of authoritarianism. I would put it much more on uh, the fact that internet and tech became another domain where nation states want to exert their own influence and their own right as sovereign and, and sovereign nations. And they're trying to protect 
their, uh, their citizens' data or for other reasons. I also understand that. Not everyone here wants data uh, uh, for protection, also for misuse. But that's a global trend. The global trend is that data is being used as an asset, also being treated as a national security uh, uh, component that should be within the boundaries of an of a nation state. And of course, that's a common issue in much of the Middle East and the Persian Gulf that are mostly undemocratic. So it is a hallmark of authoritarian governments to want to control speech. And those internet sovereignty laws play nicely with all of that. So certainly in Iran, that's the issue. Uh, I think UAE has some speech controls on what can be done in Saudi Arabia as well. So, so those all kind of intersect. I want to go back to your paper and you wrote that United, you said here that the United States should condition military support, intelligence sharing, and development aid for allied nations on excluding Huawei and other Chinese firms from their infrastructure. And when I read that, I was I read that a couple of times because I was like, okay, well, that basically wipes out the entire global South. And and again, it's a weird thing to say only because. As you pointed out in the beginning of our discussion, the U.S. doesn't have an alternative. It has Nokia, Samsung, Ericsson. Those are European and Korean alternatives, but it doesn't have an American alternative. So it goes up to country X, and as you're saying, it says, if you have Huawei, then we don't do military support, intelligence sharing, and development aid. That's it. Take it. Country X then turns around and said, okay, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to rip out $50 million worth of Huawei networking gear out of my network right now? And then what do I do? Are you going to give me $50 million to replace it, which is probably going to be $150 million, given the fact that there's a lot of other costs that come with it? So let's get down to brass tacks about your recommendation and what a country, particularly in the global south, is supposed to do when confronted by that American ultimatum. No, this is an excellent point. So uh, I have two uh, reactions here. Number one, I think when I wrote this in my mind, I was mostly focused on partners, um, um, not every country, because again, America at this point is not really engaging with the uh, whole regions. They are, specific, they are engaging with uh, pivotal countries and we can name them, right? So in Africa, they care about Egypt, uh, Algeria, Morocco, uh, 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 Nigeria, of course, Ethiopia. So you can name specific pivotal countries. What's a model that America should follow? I think the Trump administration, specifically under Secretary Pompeo, they provided a model that could be replicated if it w- it is within um, um, uh, concerted effort. And what's that? So USID subsidized or provided Brazil, President Bolsonaro, with, I would say, I remember $1.1 or $1.2 billion to uh, help Brazil finance or fill the financial gap between uh, the cost of having, of having Huawei building Brazil 5G or having the option of Nokia or, or Ericsson. So and instead of telling countries, developing countries, who do not have the financial uh, capabilities and they want to get Huawei because Huawei is 45%, 50% cheaper. And instead of just telling them just exclude Huawei, no, you're telling them, uh, listen, this is going to be part of our own development package. We want to help you uh, build your own 5G. We don't have we don't have our own 5G company, but there are other trusted vendors we believe are good options that you can choose from. And this was the entire philosophy behind the Open Network Initiative. And we are willing to uh, step up our financial support and financial help for you to fill that gap. And again, 
that shouldn't be the model to be fought around the world and ev- with every single country. Because again, there are countries that are perceived as a strategic asset for Washington that you cannot really afford uh, having them uh, part of a different sphere of interest or under Chinese uh, uh, influence. And this is the whole, I would say this is the whole essence of that recommendation. The problem with, with the thinking, and just allow me to challenge that, is that the Chinese oftentimes come in with conditionalities. Do you want big, huge development package X? Then you also have to take Huawei Y. And those are linked. So for a lot of countries, they'll say, I can't pass up all of this other financing. I have to go with the Chinese. And the U.S. is coming in very, very siloed and segmented. So it's the State Department that comes in under Pompeo, as he did back in the day, and says, okay, we'll talk to you about Huawei. But other departments aren't coordinating with each other. As you talked about, the Chinese have China Inc. And that's a very formidable contender with the United States. How is a partner country, and we saw this in the United Arab Emirates with the F-35 issue, where the United States was very concerned about the relationship that the UAE has with China and that technology and intelligence from the F-35 may fall into the hands of the Chinese. And the United States put a lot of pressure on the Emirates about this. You know when the Emirates said? Forget it. Keep it. We'll get something else. So even partner countries are willing to push back on that. So I'm wondering, again, how? what's the answer to the China Inc. question that you brought up when they come in with all of this package offers that are very difficult for many global south and middle power countries to refuse? I am with you. I, I cannot push back here. I am with you on every single point you raised. We lack uh, USA Inc. We don't have USA Inc. I don't believe that this is on the horizon. The response uh, to this is usually we need more dynamic slash agile inter-agency coordination mechanism that allow the U.S. government as a whole uh, acting, acting in concerted efforts. But do I see this feasible? Like we keep, we, keep, we keep seeing the same recommendation and we hope in one administration that would be reality. But the problem is, and I agree with you, uh, 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 the U.S. government is, is far away from being perfect and lagging behind in terms of having coordinating mechanism uh, 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 to act and try to coordinate. I mean, and there's no other prime example than why you, why you talked about the F-35 uh, uh, proposed sale to the UE that was completely uh, stalled or, again, postponed. That's a good name for canceling the deal. And uh, uh, yes, this is what, what caused uh, the U.S. partners and allies to be very skeptical uh, from Washington when Washington makes commitments. I was wondering where you feel we are now in this is kind of much hype kind of like tech decoupling that that that's been you know kind of many people have discussed but but I think many people have also acknowledged that it's going to be very difficult to do um and that you know that 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 even like you know, I think I think it's changing a little bit now. But like, even even at at at, at moments where the political discourse from from the United States were was extremely hawkish about China, like we we saw, you know, kind of big business or like big corporations in the U.S. still kind of like do a, a lot of business with China and, and like even double down on some of their work in China. Um, how do you feel that's going in the first place and how do you feel that 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 changes within china particularly the kind of the the crackdown on on chinese tech companies and you know other 
kind of changes in direction that seem to be emerging from from this moment of the Xi Jinping um, administration. How, how do you th- how do you feel that the with with all of these things in play, how is a, a tech decoupling going to go in the next few years? I agree with the voices that say that complete tech decoupling is unfeasible, uh, even though we are in a low point in uh, in the era of globalization. The globalization is uh, is going through a tough time. But the world is already integrated. I'm not saying the world is flat, but we're already we're already uh, integrated um, uh, in terms of supply chain. It's very hard for me to see full decoupling when it comes to supply chain or uh, uh, full decoupling from uh, tech platforms. It's very, very difficult to see that. Uh, maybe in some critical uh, components of the tech ecosystem, maybe, of course, 5G. I think 5G became very, uh, uh, the hardware of the internet is going to be a battle. Uh, a geopolitical battle between uh, United States and its own allies and uh, versus China slash Russia. Semiconductors is also going to be part of that kind of decoupling uh, tech that's going through decoupling um, uh, phase. But other tech, very hard to see that. Very hard to see that. And aiming um, um, uh, and aiming for full decoupling is not only unfeasible, it might be self-defeating in my own assessment. Um, I think we're going to uh, we're going through partial decoupling uh, uh, in terms. Of, let's say DD is about to be delisted from uh, New York Exchange, right? That's part of it. Uh, or you have Airbnb shutting down its own operations in China. That's part of it. Same thing applies to LinkedIn. So you're going to see that sort of uh, 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 some American champions slash some Chinese champions uh, have limited access to uh, each country's uh, market. Um, limited uh, uh, limited investment, cross-investment uh, between China and the United States, um, uh, limited uh, 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 cooperation in terms of R&D um, um, uh, and co-production. Uh, also, uh, countries will be, uh, the companies will be very, very concerned about patents and co-production. Uh, that's, I would say these are going to be part of this uh, partial uh, decoupling between the United States and China uh, on tech. We started our conversation talking about how your article, in, in my view, was a warning for official Washington about the status quo today in, in the Middle East. And I'm curious, when you talk to U.S. stakeholders, as you do in your job in Washington, what's the reaction that you got from the National Interest article? And by the way, for those of people not familiar with the National Interest, not a liberal left-leaning publication. This is a national security publication that tends to be on the more conservative side, if anything. So here you are, kind of waving your hand, going, hey, everybody, you got to pay attention to what's going on over here. What's been the reaction that you've gotten from, from folks in Washington? It depends on who you're talking to. I have been talking to some stakeholders who are very aware that we are lagging on tech. We don't really understand tech. Tech should be a, a cornerstone to our own foreign policy engagement. But then you are speaking to other stakeholders who believe that this is just uh, an exaggeration. Uh, it's just another call, another false flag. Uh, we don't see this as a, a lost cause or we're not that behind. So it depends on who you're talking to. And let me guess, the people who are more sophisticated about it tend to be the practitioners and the people who dismiss the concern tend to be more politically oriented. Is that a fair assessment? This is a perfect assessment of, of what I have been going through. And on top of that, tech companies have been trying to uh, sound the alarm about how uh, how tech 
it should be a very important component of U.S. bilateral engagements with many countries around the world. But official Washington is still, again, the whole animosity with the with the tech companies since 2016 is just making all these engagements toxic. Um, um, and there is mistrust between the Valley and Washington, between Silicon Valley and Washington. And we need to work on that. Because again, in great power competition, you cannot afford to alienate your own tech companies because geopolitics are not only is not only about boots on the grounds, but also it's about wires and data and tech. And you need to be in line with your own uh, uh, tech companies uh, uh, on this front. Uh, also, another point is maybe we need uh, uh, we need different foreign policy professionals with different. Uh, skills you need maybe uh, foreign policy professionals who understand uh, who have technical background they understand the uh, ai from a technical slash engineering standpoint but then they studied ir they understand ir theory and they're able to mix both together so we're able to have policy professionals who are able to come up with uh, uh, the right answers therefore the right conclusions therefore we're getting a, a right action plan to deal with the situation Regrettably, Mohammed, the vast majority of the people who listen to the show fall into the category of sophisticated practitioners and not the idiot politicians. So I don't think we have too many of our politicians. In terms of you suggesting that the Americans need to fix their distrust of tech, it's hard to see that happen when the fact is that the Republican Party has basically vilified tech to the point where they look at it as the enemy of all enemies, in many ways worse than everybody else. I mean, if you listen to Donald Trump and uh, Mitch McConnell and those folks, what they talk about Twitter and Facebook, and it's all part of the radical left. It seems very difficult to find unity on that issue in the United States today, given the bitter divides that exist there. The article is, China is winning the Middle East data, cyber, and technology race. It literally could not be spelling out the warning and that statement more clearly written by Mohammed Soleimane, who is a non-resident scholar with the Middle East Institute's Emerging Tech Program and Egypt Program, and also a senior associate at the consulting firm McClarty Associates, Middle East and North Africa practice. The article is in the national interest. We'll put links to it and some of other Mohammed's other excellent writing in the show notes so you can click below. Mohammed, thank you so much for taking the time today to walk us through all your thinking on this. You are very active on Twitter and you have a wonderful Twitter feed. What is your handle so people can find you? Absolutely. Thank you so much. My handle is this is Solomon. And I will put a link to Mohammed's Twitter handle in the show notes below. Mohammed, thank you so much again. We appreciate you getting up early for us today and uh, really look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you, sir. The pleasure is mine. Thank you, gentlemen. Kobus, Mohammed's article and his other writings are absolutely essential reading. And he, again, is sounding this alarm in Washington that unfortunately not enough people are paying attention to. And you see this in the press coverage of the IPEF. Like They're taking this seriously as if it's another program that's going to work. And one of the things that we have seen over the years is that these U.S. efforts are not backed up with solid policy. They're not backed up with real muscle behind it. And the United States will sometimes put out this line that says, well, we're not going to compete with the Chinese dollar for dollar. Okay, okay, but you got to show up with something. And, you, and money does matter here because money is clout. I mean, that's the same in all politics everywhere. 
So if you're not going to show up with money and you're not going to have creative policymaking, you got to have something. And I think what Mohammed's doing is saying we got to bring some expertise. But at the same time, the death of expertise is a real phenomenon in the United States. We don't celebrate specialists anymore. This was on very full display during the whole COVID fiasco in the United States, where it was the experts fighting against the political interests and fighting against Fox News and Tucker Carlson. And that was just over and over and over again, we see this play out. So I'm not entirely sure that his call for more expertise in the foreign policy circles to be able to talk tech is going to solve this problem. Uh, Frankly, I'm just not sure, based on what I've seen, that the United States is truly up for the challenge that it's facing both with the rise of the rest, as they say, in terms of all of these new emerging powers that are there, and at the same time to confront China. The last point that I'll make on this, going back to the U.S. ASEAN summit, the United States kicked up $150 million. $150 million. And you heard Biden talk about how Asia is the most important region in the world. This is where the showdown with the Chinese is taking place. The economies on the front line of that are here in Southeast Asia, and all they've got is $150 million? I checked that my county, Alameda County, where I'm from in the Bay Area, gets more than $150 million a month from the federal government on any given month. So we're basically saying that this existential challenge that people like Senator Tom Cotton will tell you that we're facing with the Chinese is worth only $150 million? I just, I don't get it. I don't get it. And I don't understand IPEF. I don't understand Clean Network. I don't understand B3W. And I certainly don't understand $150 million to ASEAN, 10 ASEAN countries as some kind of symbol. Even if you're not going to match the Chinese dollar for dollar. Literally, the Chinese came in last November with a $1.5 billion package for Southeast Asia. So a 1 to 10 ratio is not really competing. You know, yeah, I, I think I think these are these are all really really important points. You know, it, it strikes me sometimes that that China and the U.S. is a little bit similar in the sense that um, that they tend to start with the announcement of a big initiative. You know. Um, like there's there's many like you know kind of huge initiatives that 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 get that get announced, and then the kind of you know it's 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 a it's a kind of a, I'm sure there's someone who's who's a better kind of knowledge of Mandarin maybe you um you know who has a, a better a, you know a, a better idiom but but it reminds me a little bit of that of the idiom that's frequently used in relation to special economic zones in the sense of like you 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 build. You build the nest, and then the phoenix will come. Um, you know, so so it, it, you know, there's an aspect there. You kind of make the announcement, and then and then the kind of the details will fall into place. The problem is with the Chinese on the Chinese side. Like once that announcement is made, that sets the direction for many many kind of state, semi-state, and private private actors to then who then kind of like compete with each other to kind of fall in line and kind of and and, and put their own spin on on this kind of broad direction that was announced. On the U.S. side, that's not the situation. You know, kind of, it's not a situation that Google jumps the moment when the when the U.S. president speaks. Um, you know, so so there, it, I think it it the the kind of glare the gap becomes a bit more glaring, um, and then the gap the one of the gaps that then becomes quite big is the is the the, the difference between the U.S. as a set of armed forces around the world and the US as a commercial actor you know and both of those are incredibly powerful but they seem to be kind of powerful in different places in different ways you know that don't necessarily 
work together um and you know in a lot of ways that's a good thing right kind of like in, in, because you know because that kind of like seamless monolithic aspect of you know kind of of Chinese power can be a scary aspect of Chinese power too depending on on where you sit in relation to it but um but on the US side it does make for less coherence um and a more kind of chaotic field of actors and let's just be very clear here just because we're criticizing the US for so much of its own mediocrity and its inability to execute doesn't mean that we're suggesting or at least I'm not suggesting that the Chinese are somehow doing it better. I mean, the Chinese have a reverse problem, as you pointed out, Kobus, that so the United States will oftentimes, you know, they'll, they'll announce these big, pa- these big plans and then don't follow through. Well, the Chinese do something similar as well. Like even with FOCAC, these huge $60 billion packages that they did in, what was it, 20... Correct me if I'm wrong. It was 16 and 20, I think it was. 2015 and 20, Yeah, 15 and, and 2019. Oh, 2018. That's right. Those were the two $60 billion years. They only used about $40 billion of that. They didn't use the full $60 billion. And this is typical in a lot of Chinese plans where they'll announce a huge giant number and then don't fulfill it. Or they'll announce these MOUs, these memorandums of understanding, which have no backing or legal weight of any kind. And nothing ever happens to them. But they get the credit for doing things that they don't actually do. So there's, a, there's another issue on the Chinese side that's there, and that's worthy of further exploration as well, that they are full of hype as well, and that's equally toxic, because it doesn't really fulfill what they're saying they're going to do. But on, on the American side, I guess the, the frustration, though, over and over again, is that they keep doing the same thing, and everybody keeps believing them. I'm so frustrated reading the press coverage that every time there's one of these new acronym announcements, IPEF, B3W, you know, whatever you want, people take it seriously as if it's going to work. And there just isn't any track record or evidence that the United States is good at doing this. And, and the frustrating part to watch it from afar is that all the pieces that are necessary to build an effective policy are there. Huge amounts of development aid. They have an Exim bank. They've got all the tools. They've got the DFC. They've got, you know, again, a very robust private sector. They've got a lot of great tools that if they just pulled it together. But the problem is, is they've got a sclerotic policymaking process. And who was that Singaporean minister we read the book? Kishore Mahbubani, what's his name? Is that guy? Yeah, yeah. Kishore Mahbubani. Yeah, yeah, he made this very interesting observation in his book. He said that in the old days, it was seen that the Soviets were old and sclerotic. And the Americans were young and dynamic in their policymaking process. But today, the perception is, whether it's true or not, again, this is at least just according to him, is that the United States is old and sclerotic. And it's the Chinese who are far more dynamic in their policymaking process. So I think to Mohammed's point, if we focus on a more dynamic, less sclerotic policymaking process that can bring together these various assets, that might be the pathway out of mediocrity. Maybe. I mean, you know, for, for me, the, you know, I, I have a slightly different kind of slightly different reading of, 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 of that that Mahmoudani quote. And, and I, yeah, you know, kind of in general terms, I, I, I agree, you know, kind of wholeheartedly. I guess what I'd add is that is that one of the dynamism on the Chinese side or the current dynamism um, and you know who knows what's happening in, in relation to tech and China at the moment it's, it's we're in a very kind of up in the air moment you know um, but but as, as we've seen China over the last 10 years at least 
Like one one of the aspects of of the dynamism, I think, or one of the aspects underlying the dynamism is that they come from a developmentalist place. So what you know, development, you know, kind of is lots of things, but it's it's also is it's among other things a story. Um, it's a story of of a place you were and then the place you're going to. Um, and that means not only that, that China has a very powerful narrative to to tell in the rest of the world, um, you know, on its about its own development, that it 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 also it, it provides a kind of organizing principle for the Chinese themselves to move forward, but it's also um means that they're on the same page with lots of other countries who are trying to achieve achieve the same thing. And that is something that I was actually thinking about when, when Mohammed was mentioning these these strategic particularly strategic countries or countries with particular strategic importance to to the United States and that they should fo- be the focus of this kind of strategic tech thinking, particularly also like trying to kind of keep them out of Chinese tech networks and in other networks, is that, you know, in order to do that, one has to take these countries, you have to feel these countries like need to develop in, in some kind of fundamental way. And I don't know that the Americans really, and this I'm not I mean to single out the Americans for themselves. I think this is true for Europeans and for for other for the rest of the global north too. They don't feel that need to develop on their skins, right? Kind of like they 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 don't they don't feel that like that real like desperation for development that that power that powered Chinese success, um, and. Which means that they frequently, I think, are a little bit indifferent to the development trajectories of certain countries. Um, you know, so so for them, it becomes a, a really that the main thing is keep, we need to keep Chinese internet out of these countries. Not how are these countries going to get the internet? Um, you know, which is these countries' own preoccupation. Um, you know, so so and I think I think there is one of the one of the real kind of differences between the two and that i think is it, it it underlies the 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 you know it, it, it provides one of the kind of clues of why a lot of these countries keep working with china even as china and that of course is not uniquely an american issue the canadians the australians the kiwis the europeans the japanese the koreans it's the result of ha- being already developed that's right you know um of of of, of where your develop your development trajectory lies outside of living memory but you know, kind of, I think there's a second second part there, which is that, and, and I think this is where it, it kind of complicates the American position itself, is that America itself within America is no stranger to systemic underdevelopment. You know, kind of like I mean, Flint, Michigan exists, right? Kind of like there are parts of the U.S. where systemic underdevelopment, on a, you know, in in a way that that would be familiar to 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 people in the global South is still a reality, but that is part of, with it's it's baked into the particular history of the US. And that's, again, it's not only the US, this is true for Europe, it's true for many other places, many other rich countries too. But, you know, kind of that, that, it, that, that is, you know, kind of it, it, it complicates the, the, the kind of narrative that, that the United States wants to tell, which is, which is, you know, kind of one of, of being excellent at everything, um, you know, and 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 the global south, you know, is not they're not kind of blind to those realities, um, and it, it complicates then the the kind of the, the messaging that comes out of the U.S. at the same time. So we've been coming back to the U.S.-China rivalry quite a bit in 2022, more than we had expected to, but I think it's just a sign of the times. This is the moment that we're in today, 
And I think we're going to have to keep coming back to these great power issues simply because the war in Ukraine has changed the dynamic of it. Also, the intensifying conflict between the United States and China. You know, it's hard to talk about any possible cooperation between these two, Kobus, when the topic of discussion this week was whether or not Joe Biden was serious about coming to the defense of Taiwan in the event of a war with China. I mean, that is the rhetoric of where we are today. And so that's one of the reasons why we're going to continue looking at the U.S.-China relationship and where the Global South fits within all of that. So we hope that you will stay with us. And of course, all of this is being covered every single day uh, on our site. And we have a team of six editors in Africa and Asia, all from the Global South, providing perspectives on the Global South in Arabic, French, and in English. We would love for you to join our community of readers. You can go to our website. You can see all the language sites that are there. By the way, the French and the Arabic sites are going to be closing uh, up for the paywalls will start coming in pretty soon because we do want to make these sustainable businesses in order to support the independent journalists who produce this content every week for for you. And so we would love for you to join us. You can go to Global, China Global South. You can go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe and you'll see all of our subscription options there. If you would just like to support the show and to get a weekly digest, you don't really want to get all the full everyday coverage, you can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash China Africa Project. So that'll do it for this edition of the program. We're so grateful that you joined us all the way until the end. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another episode. For Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Tag us on Twitter at China GS Project and visit us at ChinaGlobalSouth.com. If you speak French, check out our full coverage at projetafriquechine.com and Afrique on Twitter. That's Afrique with a K. And you'll also find links to our sites and social media channels in Arabic.